continue to uh, go through our series in the book of Acts, Becoming His Church, and as we've talked about before, this is not just the title of our series, this is really our objective, our, our goal, why we're here. We want to be His church, we want to be the church of Jesus Christ. We don't want to be a church, we don't want to be a big church, a small church, we don't want to be a young church, an old church. Above all, we want to be his church, and whatever those other things are, they are. Um, and so we've been looking at the book of Acts to see, like, what are some of the fundamental characteristics of the, of the church? What are some of the fundamental characteristics that are there from the very beginning? And we saw from the very, very beginning, first and foremost, it was obedience. They were obedient to Jesus. They were not just obedient in the small things or the big things, it was in all things. And we could see from very early on that that obedience wasn't just kind of, a, kind of a general ascent. They devoted themselves to studying scripture, understanding scripture, the apostles' teachings. And they were obedient even unto death, as we've seen. We also see the elements of them being witnesses. Witnesses wherever they went. And what we're going to find out today, witnesses to whomever they encountered. But we also see that one of the characteristics of this early church is that this, the, this, the work of the Spirit is so evident in that church. So evident in so many ways. Just what's happening to them, their, their transformation, their bold witness, but also in their authentic community they had with one another. The love that was connecting them beyond just getting together once a week, kind of like what, what we do in the modern church, but a genuine connection where they would go even daily from house to house. And what we have seen is that God has been like trying to help these early Christians. He's trying to help them understand the vision. The vision's been laid out. Jesus said, you know, in, in Matthew, he says, you know, you're gonna make disciples of all nations. And later on, here in Acts, he says, you're gonna be my witnesses. You're gonna be my witnesses from here in Jerusalem to the rest of the world. They know the mission, but they don't really fully get it. That's kind of overwhelming already for them, and they, they, they understand that, they accept that, but they don't fully get it because they're still, not, they're still not really understanding how revolutionary this faith is. They're not really understanding that what Jesus came to do is not just kind of to to sidle up next to the world and put his arm around the world and say, hey world, let's, let's walk along here together. That Jesus came to, to turn the world system upside down. What the world values, what the world's goals are, how the world operates, it was all wrong and it was going to lead as it had already led to continued destruction continued hatred, animosity, suffering. And it's because of the world that the world, 
the way the world does things, the world struggles. Because on one sense, the world knows that we need to somehow unite ourselves. We know that, that we cannot all just kind of live on our own. That we somehow need some kind of unity, some kind of relationship, some kind of community. So we have to find something that unites us. But at the same time, there's, there's the things that divide us. And one of the fundamental problems with the world is that the world divides and unites over things it should not. The world will unite over things that has no business uniting over. It's the wrong things that they're uniting over. And then the world will divide over things that it really shouldn't divide over. You know, one of the problems with reading scripture is when we read scripture, we read scripture from kind of a 21st century lens. We look back, and when we read about nations, Gentiles, ethnicity, we are thinking in terms of like kind of modern categories. Modern categories that we've, we've kind of placed on things. Like if, you know, some of you who may be of the Caucasian persuasion, like me, a little bit, you know, the, that, that side of my life, you know, if somebody were to say like, oh, what are you? And I would say like, oh, I'm a quarter German. What does that mean? It, it doesn't really mean anything other than perhaps I had some ancestors that lived in the German areas, but it wasn't Germany. These are modern concepts we have. And yet we will divide over these modern concepts. We'll divide over race, we'll divide over gender, we'll even divide over economics, or we'll divide over education levels. We find all different ways to divide, divide, divide. And then in the world, we'll also unite. And we'll unite, and look at some of the things that you see, you know, the good and the bad of being able to have 24-hour news cycles and to have internet and all of that, is that we get to see a lot of good, but we also get to see a lot of what's wrong. And you will find more and more people uniting over sin. Uniting over sin. They will take things that the Bible clearly says this is not just wrong because there's some kind of arbitrary right or wrong. This is harmful to society. It's destructive to society and the world unites around it and celebrates it. Even when we talk about things like peace, there's, there's compromises that take place. We know the gospel talks about the gospel being a gospel of peace, but it's not peace at any cost. Yet in the name of unity, we'll unite over sin. The world struggles with this. The passage of scripture we're going to look at today is, is going to deal with this issue because it's not new. It's been going on for 2,000 years. In fact, the church has struggled with it for 2,000 years and it still struggles with it today. Even the church, still tainted by the world, will unite over the things it should not unite and divide over the things that it should not divide. 
So we come here, chapter 10 of the book of Acts. We've, we've seen this, this incredible growth of the early church, this incredible experience they had. And they were dealing with some issues early on. They, they were struggling with some issues early on. They had persecution coming back at them early on, and it's continued. But the gospel kept going forth. It kept going out. And it had gone from Jerusalem, then it was into the Judea, Samaria areas. And we know it had already begun to spread into parts of the Roman Empire beyond Palestine. But the church had a problem. The church had a problem because the church didn't really fully understand what Jesus meant when he said, make disciples of all nations. They didn't really understand what he meant when he said, I want you to take the gospel and be my witnesses in all of these areas. What we're gonna learn today is what they actually thought Jesus meant was that they were to go and to find all of the Jewish people, all of the traditional Jewish people who were still wanting to hold on to the old ways, the Hellenized Jewish people who had, who had kind of lost their way. And at this point in the story, they were even gonna deal with the kind of semi-Jewish people, the Samaritans. But they saw that this is, this is the job, that they were going to be just going throughout all the world and finding all of the Jewish people and helping them understand that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, there's going to be no doubt here. We saw with Saul that God was already preparing Saul to become the missionary to the Gentiles. But it wasn't enough for one man to be the missionary to the Gentiles. And what we're gonna see this week and next week is God about to move the entire church to this next stage of growth. This next stage of growth that's saying, no, this isn't just for the Jewish people scattered around the empire. This is for every person. I'm gonna read this entire chapter, and I know sometimes people get kind of lost when we read something long, and I really want to encourage you if, you, if you can read along, great. If you can't, just try to picture in your mind. Let your brains be active, because it is a story of what's going on, and it's difficult because most of our understanding of first century Palestinian Roman um, you know, geography and ar architecture is limited to what we might see on TV, but stay engaged here. It says, at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. So he's a, he's a Roman officer in charge of probably about 80 men. But he wasn't just a Roman soldier. He wasn't just a Roman officer. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. 
when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. It's about a 30-mile trip to Joppa, so it's going to take them a while. They're you know, walking, so it's going to take them probably about uh, an entire day to get there. It says, the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the door and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him, and on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered, and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. 
As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. We read this story and we think this is just like, oh, this is this this kind of great evangelism story, convergence story. No, this is representing a huge moment in the church. Cornelius, as we talked about last week, he's a Gentile. And it's, again, very difficult for us to, to really understand the difference between that divided the Jews and the Gentiles. It wasn't a, just a one-way street. The Gentiles didn't like the Jewish people as much as the Jewish people didn't like the Gentiles, but it was for different reasons. The Jewish people were not just like oppressed because the Romans had come and conquered them and now the Romans were in charge and the Roman soldiers were there and soldiers did what soldiers do and of course they are not always the best representatives of the people and they were, they, they were often seen as, you know, you know, as being cruel, being bullies. So he's not just a Gentile, he's also a, an officer in the Roman army. And as a centurion, he had, certain, he had certain privileges. And so here he is living among people who are, who are largely just kind of living from day to day. And he has much more wealth, much more power. And he's not even from their area. He's the enemy. He's an officer in the enemy's army. The Gentiles, they, even if he had just been a Gentile, they, he would have been considered unclean. And Cornelius is given this very specific vision. He gets names and he gets places. In fact, it's kind of like if I was making up this story, I would not like say there's two, two Simons living in the same house. It's too much room for confusion. You know, the soldiers go and grab Simon the Tanner, and he's like, what, what am I doing here? 
No, it's so specific. There's two Simons. Make sure you get the right Simon. Simon the Tanner, and they kind of give general idea where he, where he lives. So here's Cornelius. And all Peter knows about Cornelius is that he's a Roman officer. He knows nothing else. He's told something else, but he's being told something else by people he doesn't know, and he doesn't necessarily have any reason to trust. If Peter doesn't have his vision, if Peter doesn't have the spirit telling him, go with these guys, Peter would have been an idiot to go with them. He probably would have been confused, like, why would Roman soldiers want me? Is this some kind of like plot by the religious leaders? Are they just gonna kind of get me there and make fun of me? Why would they want me to be there? But Peter does have a vision. But his vision is different from Cornelius's. Cornelius's is very specific. Peter's is about food. It does say he's hungry, but I don't think he was just dreaming of food because he was hungry. It's this vision about food. And some of you have heard the term kosher food, and that's food that, you know, that meets all of the, the, the Jewish uh, religious food laws. Well, all of these animals that are showing up in this vision, that the voice says, take them and eat them, they wouldn't pass the kosher food test. They were all on the kind of forbidden side. And you know, some people ask, like, why, did, why didn't Peter just get a vision that said, hey, some dudes are coming, um, they're, they're from this Roman guy, and you need to go. Well, he needed this for two reasons. One is, he needed to have this clear teaching, which he then echoes, that God told him, do not call, do not call unclean anything that I've made clean. Do not call common what I have made clean. He's told that. But there's this other problem. Because the other problem that he's kind of putting there, and it's why we have these foods, we have these animals, He's saying, you're going to let, you're going to let, if you're not careful, these cultural differences get in the way of the gospel reaching and transforming lives. Are you really that small? Are you really that petty? And do you think I'm that small and I'm that petty. It's not that these kosher food laws weren't important. They're in scripture. But the point of the vision is that the gospel, the gospel is what now transcends everything. The gospel is what creates the context for everything. You want to keep eating kosher foods, that's perfectly okay. You can keep doing that. But you cannot say those who don't follow the food laws that my culture follows are not 
welcome. They're not acceptable to God. Cornelius is described as, a, as God-fearing. We're not really sure that he was considered what was called a God-fearer. If you remember when we talked about this earlier, you know, there were the Hebraic Jews, which were the traditional Jewish people that followed all the customs, all the religions, sacrifices, etc. Then there were the Hellenized Jews that were Jewish in an ethnic sense, but really didn't. They were much more Greek, Roman in how they lived. You probably wouldn't have even been able to tell the difference between them and somebody who's just part of the rest of the empire. But then there were the God-fearers. When the God-fearers are mentioned in scripture, they're actually Gentiles, non-Jewish people who are following the scriptures, worshiping God. They haven't fully converted to Judaism. They haven't been circumcised and they haven't offered all the sacrifices and done everything they needed to do to be fully, to be fully Jewish. And even had they done that, they still would have been kind of outsiders because even though they could become Jewish religiously, they could never become Jewish ethnically. They would always be outsiders. They would always be this divide that even if they were welcomed into the synagogue, there would always be a sense that they were inferior Peter gets this vision because it's more than just about Cornelius. He doesn't know that yet, but it's more than just about Cornelius. No, this is, this is, this is about the entire rest of the world. And so we see Peter showing us, first of all, he's obedient. He's obedient. The Spirit comes, the Spirit tells him what to do, he's obedient, he does it. He doesn't know what to expect. This whole journey, he's not sure. He's heard about this Cornelius guy from the guys taking him. He has no reason to trust him, but he's gonna go because the Spirit told him to go. He's gonna be obedient. And when he gets there, he's going to be asked to testify. And he will. We see all the elements of his church being exemplified in Peter. And somewhere along the way, we don't know where, but somewhere along the way, it could have been in the moment when Cornelius talks to him, it could have been somewhere as he's walking, it could have been even earlier, but somewhere along the way, Peter gets this really important truth. God shows no partiality. God doesn't base who can come to faith in Jesus Christ on the things that we do. It's not based on their ethnicity. It's not based on whether they're slaves or free. It's not based on how much or how little money they have. It's not based on their gender. God shows no partiality. In fact, the only thing that, that then would divide is those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, who have asked forgiveness of sin, who are repenting and walking away from sin and everybody else. That's the only divide that matters anymore. Peter finally gets it. It's taken a while. 
It's taken three visions. It's taken the confirmation of the vision by you know, these men showing up and him going to Cornelius' house. Peter, as you know, is always kind of stubborn and kind of thick-headed. And maybe we could have gotten by with just one vision, or maybe we needed seven visions. But Peter, three times this happens. And even then, what we're going to read about Peter in the next few chapters is he still doesn't fully get it. It's going to take Paul coming along and some conflicts with Paul before Peter really, really gets it. But he's gotten it enough to know now that God shows no partiality. It's about Jesus. It's not about culture. It's about Jesus. It's not about ethnicity. It's about Jesus. It's not about my personal preferences or your personal preferences. My personal taste, your personal taste. It's not about my traditions or your traditions. It's about Jesus. It's about faith in Jesus Christ. That's what matters. Peter gets it. Sadly, for 2,000 years, So many Christians still don't get it. Oh, we're not, you know, we're 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 not like, you know, saying like, oh, you know, um, you know, um, anybody's welcome here. Yeah, and we like to celebrate in Hawaii, like, oh, we have multicultural churches. We do. We do. But there's. Something I know that lurks inside all of us. For some, it's bigger. Others, it's a little more private and secret. But there are people in our society that we would not welcome here if they showed up. There are people that if they came, they wanted to be part of this church, if they came to faith in Jesus Christ, if they were starting those first steps, because to us they would be unacceptable or they would be so different that we really couldn't connect to them and relate to them, we would struggle and we wouldn't be the first. It's been going on for 2,000 years and the shame of it is this, That's the way the church is supposed to be different. We're supposed to be different because we're supposed to know the thing that we unite around. We unite around our faith in Jesus Christ and we know the things that we should divide over and we divide over sin. But there are too many churches that look the other way with certain sins and they'll divide over everything else. Peter gets it. Again, it wasn't easy, but he gets it. How important is this moment in church history? How important is this moment in world history? in the history of the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel and the church and the spread of the church, it's so important that God intervenes multiple times. The vision from Cornelius, the triple vision to Peter, 
the sign of the men at the gate, the Spirit telling Peter why the men are there and what he should do. And then finally, as we see at the end, the Holy Spirit falling upon them as they're hearing. They don't even have to hear the whole gospel. He's about, we're not even sure. In some situations it says he just started, and others says he's kind of midway, and the Holy Spirit falls upon them. By the way, you know, every, every week, John and I, you know, when we preach, we spend a lot of time preparing the message. But if the Holy Spirit fell upon you and you were convicted, I, I would be good with that. I'd be like, okay, I don't have to finish my wonderful presentation. Maybe I will later, but the Holy Spirit falls upon them. The conviction of the Holy Spirit in our lives can happen when we're singing during the worship. It can happen in the morning before we even get here. But here in the middle of what he's saying, while he's still saying these things, the Holy Spirit falls on them. So what are we seeing here? This incredibly important thing this moment in, in, in the history of the world, in the history of what God is doing in this world. Well, we see just a few points, and the first one of this, that the work of the gospel is God at work. See, I can go out and share my faith all I want. I can go out and, you know, we can encourage all of us to share our faith, and we should. We should evangelize. We should share our faith. But we should never think that that it is me sharing my faith which is going to bring people to Christ. That is the work of God. That is the work of his spirit. Which means I shouldn't be like limiting that. I shouldn't be limiting to those who are, who are like good prospects. See, I would love to be in a situation like Peter. I would love to go over to somebody's house and somebody unexpectedly invited all their friends and family. So there's like, 50, 60, 70 people there, and the person says, look, um, can you just tell us about Jesus? Oh, I would love that. Evangelism made easy, right? They're already ready. They're already primed. They're like, just tell us. Tell us what we need to do. Unfortunately, it doesn't usually happen that way. But we shouldn't be judging like, that person is likely to to you know, respond positively, that person's not. So I'm gonna go to the ones that's likely. No. As God said to Peter, what he has made clean, do not call common. But Peter doesn't know who God has made clean. But he gets it. He knows that he would have judged Cornelius. He knows that if he had seen Cornelius walking down the street and you know, looking like the Roman officer that he was, that he would have thought, no way I'm sharing with that guy. I'm going to the synagogues because that's where the people who believe in God are. No. We see the work of God in, not just in the visions, not just in the Holy Spirit speaking, but we also see what's happened to Peter. Remember, this is the same Peter that thought Jesus was going to lead a military revolution against the Romans. 
And now he's going to one of their officer's house and he's gonna share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's going to welcome them as brothers and sisters. That's not Peter. That's the work of God in Peter, changing him. And then we see the work of God in how the Holy Spirit comes upon these people. And let me just tell you, you know, we always have to say this in modern times because there's some misconstruing of, of the Holy Spirit coming upon people. Because everybody, you know, you know will read this and then they, they, they don't know what to do with it because they're like, does this mean the Holy Spirit only comes this way? And the answer is no. We know, as we talked about in the book of Acts, every time the gospel goes to the next level, the Holy Spirit comes in this way. But we see other times when the gospel's not going to the next level, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't happen. When the Ethiopian eunuch, we, we get no evidence that, that this happened to him. But every time the gospel goes first in Jerusalem and then when it goes to Samaria and now it's going to the Gentiles, the rest of the world. For me, the main way that the Holy Spirit works in our lives, the main evidence we have is that we are being transformed in such a way that we will indeed be seeing what happens to Peter that we will indeed be able to love our enemies and love our enemies so much that we will share the gospel with them, even if it means at great risk and great danger. The second thing that we see is what we just talked about from Peter, that the gospel is for the faithful from every nation. This is mind-blowing to Peter. This is mind-blowing to the, most of the world. Most of the world had the concept that, that you had the gods, and you know why the Roman gods were so powerful? Because Rome was so powerful. The proof that your god was powerful and strong was that, is that because you were winning, you were conquering. And here's these, these Jewish people who aren't even the most powerful of the conquered people. And they're still calling their God Almighty, creator of the universe. They're still saying there are no other gods. There is only this one God, Yahweh, Jehovah. Kind of blew people's minds. But now it's taken to another level because the the, the, the Jewish people would have still said, but he's our God. He's my God. And Peter gets it. He gets it. The gospel's not just the calling of the Jewish people back home. Calling to the Messiah. Calling to move towards the day of the Lord. No, it's more than that. It's 
It is the calling of friends. It is the calling of family. It is the calling of the Jewish people. But it's also the calling of enemies. It's the calling of strangers, people we don't know. It's the calling of people I like and people I don't like. People who I am just like and people who are nothing like me. And it's not just the calling of them and the salvation of them. It's the gathering of people who have no earthly business being together. We're not related. We don't have common interests. We're not the same age. We're not the same ethnicity. And yet we're brought together. And we're not just brought together. We're brought together and we're united by his spirit to be closer than family. That is what the church is. That is the witness of the church to the world to say, world, you are wrong. The things you unite around are wrong. The things that you divide over are wrong. We, the church, who know Jesus Christ, who've been transformed, we want to show you what is right. And what is right is how we love and live together at his church. It's one of the reasons that I long to be more and more his church, to know that we're not there. But I long for it, one, because I would just love to be part of something like that. That's the selfish reason. The unselfish reason, because that's the witness to the world. Every philosophy, every religion that I've ever heard of can produce one good person. You can find one good person Somebody who's moral, who's upright. Oh, you may question their motives, whatever, but you can produce one good person. Christianity is not about producing just one good person. The power of the gospel is that, is that the kingdom is being produced. That we're producing communities of faith who live out God's truth. And do so in such a powerful way that the world cannot help but take notice. Every, tra every tribe, every nation, every tongue. Jesus said in Matthew 28, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. This is actually part of our church mission statement. When we talk about fulfilling the great commission, and if we go to the end of the New Testament, really the end of Scripture in Revelation chapter 5, and it talks about the 24 elders, and they're, they're in the throne room of God. You have the 24 elders, you have the four living creatures, and they're all falling before God, and they're singing, and this is the song. This is the new song they sing when, when the Lamb, when Jesus comes and opens the seal that says the, the final things are about to happen. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. 
this is, this is God's purpose. His purpose, his project is to take the faithful from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, not every single one, not every individual member, but from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and bring them together to be a kingdom of priests. That's his plan. It's not a secret. It's not even that hard to understand, but for some reason, we constantly forget it and put it on the side. And then we forget, why are we here? Why are we Christians? Why do we come together the times we come together? And it's right there. And here we get this snapshot of that moment when the gospel just is going to explode into the rest of the world. The last point, I'll make it a short one. The power of the Spirit is always the evidence of the gospel. The power of the Spirit is always the evidence of the gospel. We've already seen it several times here. I've already talked about it here today. But one thing that I want us to understand is that, 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 that God is impartial. The gospel is impartial. The Holy Spirit is impartial. What would have happened if, if the Gentiles, Cornelius and his family, hadn't had the sign? Well, they might have been accepted into the church, but they would have been accepted as kind of secondary Christians because they didn't have the same sign. And every Gentile afterwards would have been the same. But for us, when I think about what the sign of the Spirit would be. Yeah, it would be kind of cool to see something supernatural. It'd be kind of cool to see, you know, tongues, you know, of flames hovering above everybody's head. Everybody thinks about that. But as we talked about before, those one-time signs, what, what enduring value do they have? The more significant sign is the ongoing, powerful, and very practical sign of God's impossible love in your life. You wanna know the presence of your spirit, of, of not your spirit, of the Holy Spirit in your life? It's God's impossible love. Love for people that you know you cannot love them on your own. If you were left on your own, you would hate them. In fact, you still have glimpses of hate to them. But God's spirit overpowers that hatred, that enmity, that division in your heart. And he says, you're going to love them. And you're like, okay, I got it. It's the sign. It's a more enduring sign. It's a very practical sign. And so we come to the end of the story and we see this amazing thing that happened. If this doesn't happen, you know, most of us aren't here. The gospel doesn't go to the rest of the world. It only goes into the, the Jewish community. But something very powerful happens here. Next week we're gonna see that there's, it's not, so easy. There's still a struggle with the rest of the church accepting 
these new Gentile Christians. But something amazing, something amazing happens here. And I believe God is calling us to the same thing. That we're to be witnesses in familiar places for sure, but also in different and even dangerous ones.